to the point. Pavlov was initially studying the canine digestive system. His primary interest was how strongly the digestive system would respond to different kinds of food once the food was placed in a dog's mouth. His experiments used a tube that was surgically inserted sort of in the jaw here, under the dog's mouth, and went into the dog's mouth. This tube collected saliva and measured its quantity. The more saliva, the stronger the digestive response. So by measuring saliva, you could get a sense of how strong the digestive system was kicking in. However, Pavlov's experiments ran into a snag very early in the process. All worked fine initially, so perhaps for the first day or two, the experiments seemed to be okay. But once the dogs had repeatedly witnessed the steps that occurred prior to them getting the food, for example, the opening of some container or the preparation of the food, that sort of thing, something surprising began to happen. The dogs began drooling, that is, saliva began to build up as soon as the food was prepared. The digestive system had kicked in before any food was even in the dog's mouth. But of course, this shouldn't be surprising. The dogs are merely showing evidence of implicit learning. They've picked up on regularities in the environment. Certain things consistently happen before they get food in their mouths. They use this structure and they use it to guide their behavior by preparing for what is about to come. So this is yet another example of memory preparing you for the future. Just like you warm up your car in winter, they warm up their digestive systems so that it is all ready when the food arrives. Now, of course, if any of you have pets, you know this sort of behavior well. For example, we used to store our tea in the same cabinet as we stored our dog, Lola, Lola and Layla, those are our dogs, uh, we stored their treats in that same cabinet. But we had to eventually move our tea. Why? Well, our dogs quickly learned that whenever we get a treat, we first open that cupboard. And in no time, any time we would open that cupboard door, they would be right there, looking at us with a cute and thankful look on their face. Almost like they were saying, thanks in advance for that great treat you're about to give us. So anyway, through a process that Pavlov called classical conditioning, uh, we ourselves are able to learn that certain stimuli predict certain other stimuli. And in those situations, we begin reacting to the first stimulus almost as if it were the second stimulus. And that gives us a head start on responding. As long as the predictable link between the stimuli is maintained, this can lead us to develop a habit of responding to the first stimulus in that way, even when we don't want to. So here's a concrete example. Let's say you are the type of person who tends to go to bed at roughly the same time every night and who wakes up to an alarm clock five days a week to go to work. Perhaps your alarm goes off at 6 a.m. Whether you realize it or not, there are consistencies in your sleeping environment that predict when your alarm will go off. Some of these consistencies might be external. For example, if you have a heating or cooling system that's programmable, it probably reliably turns on the furnace or air conditioning at a specific time each morning. Other consistencies might be internal. Perhaps you like to have a glass of water before going to sleep. Well, that water works its way through your system and your bladder ends up full at some relatively consistent time, which causes a reliably timed internal sensation. Even your sleep cycles are regular, following something called a circadian rhythm. And thus your brain waves and the chemicals floating around in your body and in your brain change in regular ways through the course of a night. All of these stimuli 
kind of give the brain a sense of what time it is and when the alarm is about to come on. The result? You eventually acquire the habit of waking up slightly before your alarm goes off. On a workday, this is fine. It means you tend to wake up feeling like you're ready to wake up. Yeah, maybe you missed a few moments of potential sleep, but mostly that's no big worry. But on weekends or days off, well, on those days you'd prefer to sleep in a little longer. And that's when the habit is annoying. Because even on those days when you actually remember to turn off your alarm, you may automatically wake up just before 6, habitually. Well, you may not have noticed, but in telling you all about procedural memory and habits, I've actually been setting up a field of battle. You see, while habits do often help us to do things we want to do, things like driving a standard or without paying much attention or even arguing points in effective ways, there are times when we no longer want them controlling our behavior. However, once created, habits are very hard things to break. And in considering such contexts, we'll be learning what happens when declarative memory systems and non-declarative memory systems do battle. That's right. It's time to turn this little story of memory into an action movie. To the battlefield, shall we? Lecture 10. When Memory Systems Battle. Habits versus Goals. What have I done? I've created a monster! Ah, the famous words of Dr. Frankenstein when he realizes that the entity he so lovingly brought to life has turned against him. It's a theme that's central to many a good horror movie, but it's also a theme that plays out between our declarative and our non-declarative memory systems, over and over. With the best intentions, we've cultivated some habit, or at least we've allowed it to develop. But then the habit grows strong, stronger than our ability to control. And if we suddenly d decide we don't like what it's doing, well, let's just say we understand Dr. Frankenstein's perspective a little bit better. In fact, once a year we have an interesting ritual that puts us even more directly in Dr. Frankenstein's position. Each New Year's Eve, we make resolutions. Mostly resolutions with respect to behavioral change. So we've been behaving in some way, probably for a long time, so long that either implicit memory or procedural memory are now controlling the behavior. Some behavior has become a habit, controlled by our non-declarative memory systems, a habit that we have allowed to persist until this fateful day. But today we decide that habit is a nuisance, and we want to stop it from exerting its influence. Well, to defeat this habit, we're going to have to remember our resolution, and that will require episodic memory, and we'll also have to load that memory into our working memory whenever we're within the context where the habit might take control. So our declarative systems must take charge at the right time, or else the non-declarative system will take control of the behavior, as usually happens. Friendly cooperation between the systems of memory now becomes a conflict, a battlefield to control that specific behavior. More concretely, the next time we pass by that donut shop and we feel that habitual pull that brings us to the cashier, we need episodic memory. We need to remember our resolution. And we need working memory, because working memory must wrestle control of the muscles away from procedural memory in order for us to walk past the store, feeling proud of ourselves for doing so. 
When declarative systems win this battle, we praise our willpower for succeeding. When non-declarative systems win, we say willpower has failed. But memory is actually a more fruitful way to think about this age-old battle. We've already visited one experimental version of such a battlefield. Remember the Stroop effect I mentioned in the last lecture? The task was to name colors, but sometimes the colors that we used, we used to write out words. Words that in fact were mismatching colors. So in fact, the word red, written in green ink. The actual ink color and the habit of reading the words came into conflict. And naming the ink colors was harder, it was slower, and more error prone. This is a classic experimental situation in which a highly developed habit, reading, can interfere with some goal, reading the ink color. These sorts of battles between declarative and non-declarative systems don't just occur in the lab. They're actually a very common aspect of our daily lives. Have you ever intended to go somewhere that you've maybe only been once or twice, only to suddenly find yourself driving towards work or some other common destination instead? This usually happens when the two routes are similar. There's some level of overlap. And somewhere along the way, our minds become distracted. That is, our working memory turns to some other thoughts and habits take over. These sort of situations are called capture errors. They occur in contexts where well-practiced habits are supporting some behavior, but that behavior goes against our current goals, and the habits win. In fact, the term capture error is meant to describe a situation in which behavior is captured by habit when it should be controlled by the current goals we have instead. In terms of the brain, what's happening is that the basal ganglia, responsible for habits, require far less energy than the high-energy prefrontal cortex, and that's where goals are created and managed. Of course, one of the real challenges is that these same habits can often be quite helpful. In the case of both the Stroop experiments and the case of driving to work or the store, the habit is generally a good thing. It's not that we wish we suddenly didn't know how to read or that we want to take control of every action that we make in our car. Your prefrontal cortex is thrilled by the fact that some other memory system is taking care of a lot of these mundane things. It's, it's okay, usually, to have these things handled by habit. Let's stick with the example of driving to work for a moment to flesh out the orchestrated manner in which these declarative and non-declarative systems normally interact. The first important point is this. When I discussed procedural memory in the context of driving before, I focused on memory for how to operate the car. However, if you repeatedly drive your car along a familiar route, even the higher level aspects of driving will also become habitual. So for example, at certain points you merge into lanes or you take specific turns, you speed up when you go onto a highway and you slow down when you're not. Generally speaking, you navigate your way along some path in an appropriate manner. All of these decisions that you make along the way are consistent, and they tend to be associated with very specific environmental stimuli. You turn left at this intersection and right at that one. Given this level of consistency, your implicit system encodes the structure, and your procedural systems take control of your behavior accordingly. Thus, your non-declarative memory systems begin to function almost as a sort of autopilot. 
That's a way of describing how we feel like we can drive to work without thinking. Often we can. We only need to think when something arises that's out of the ordinary, something that does not fit with the consistent events that occur uh, and that our non-declarative memory systems are based on. So for example, maybe construction prevents us from taking our ordinary route, or perhaps some emergency happens that requires different patterns of braking or acceleration, or maybe weather conditions require us to just kind of slow down and be more cautious than we normally would. Or heck, maybe some pedestrian runs out in front of our path. In these situations, our declarative memory systems, working memory especially, must flip off the autopilot and take control. Okay, so now, given this depiction of driving, consider what happens when one drives, well, when intoxicated, or the new variant, driving while talking on a cell phone. You might have wondered, why does anybody ever drive while they're distracted or drunk? Distractions or drunkenness certainly are bad for some reasons that you can now name pretty explicitly. They interfere with sensory memory, they interfere with working memory, and they even interfere with muscle memory. However, it's also true that when one is driving a familiar route and everything about the driving is routine, non-declarative memory can get somebody where they're going. And it can even give them the illusion that their driving is not being impacted at all. Of course, the problems occur when those contexts, the ones where working memory would normally be required and would step in, when those things arise. That's why we hear terms like alcohol was a contributing factor. Accidents don't generally happen because of alcohol. They happen because something out of the ordinary occurred and the drunk or the distracted person was simply unable to react as quickly and accurately as they normally would have. So the larger point then is this. Non-declarative memory systems learn our regular tendencies and slowly take control. This control is very often helpful, but the behaviors supported by the non-declarative memory system are not flexible. So typically, non-declarative and declarative systems will interact in a way that allows the non-declarative systems to exert control when everything is normal and the declarative systems stepping in when things are unusual. Okay, so now let's return to the notion of capture errors. In the case of capture errors, it is not the case that the declarative memory systems are impaired or less able to respond to new circumstances. Rather, capture errors reflect situations in which declarative systems seem to be working fine but still has difficulty taking control back from habits. And capture errors, by the way, can have some very dire consequences. For example, one study that has drawn attention in research is, is uh, an issue related to air traffic control. And here is the scenario, and this scenario was first described in the 1990s. Apparently it is common for many airports to have two inbound runways uh, that usually are both available to use. So the air traffic controllers will typically queue inbound planes into two lanes, one corresponding to each runway. Occasionally, one of the runways, though, is shut down, perhaps for maintenance or for some other reason. In those conditions, the air traffic controller must control their usual habit, the habit to create two lines of incoming arrivals, and instead, they must queue all inbound planes into a single line. The interesting thing is the following. During busy times, busy periods, having only one runway for landings, they can create delays to passengers, but the air traffic controllers apparently handle the crowded new pa pattern with very few problems. 
And that's because the radar shows a single line of planes to the air traffic controller, providing a very strong perceptual stimulus of the goal that is relevant to the current situation. However, accidents have occurred when the air traffic is light, and here's why. In that case, there are no lines of planes on the radar. And if the air traffic controller does not think about the closed runway when an inbound flight approaches, the controller might fall prey to habit and assign one of the inbound planes to the runway that's supposed to be closed, perhaps even directing a plane into a maintenance crew. This example highlights really two relevant points. First, it clearly shows that capture errors are not just annoyances, but rather they can have very dire results uh, when they occur in contexts where the errors are very costly, as in the one I just described to you. Second, it begins to give us a clearer sense of the factors relevant to our ability to control habits. Remember when I highlighted the fragility of working memory? I said that it was theoretically possible to say, take three words and hold them in working memory for a very long time. Theoretically possible, but in practice, it's nearly impossible. Stimulation, both external stimulation and internal stimulation, tends to grab our attention. And when our attention is pulled to something, that something becomes represented in our working memory. We begin to think about it. And whatever was in our working memory before is lost. Falls off that conveyor belt I told you about. Okay, so now, imagine yourself as an air traffic controller. You've been told runway two is closed. It's closed today for maintenance. Don't use runway two. Of course, when you're told that, you put it in your working memory. And you likely try to keep remembering that fact throughout the day. This may be rather easy to do when that information is continually relevant, as in the case when there are many inbound planes. What's more, when things are busy, the environment also provides you with a really nice visual cue to help you remember. The single line of planes waiting to land. But when things are not busy, your mind may wander. What's worse, the radar does not provide a nice visual cue anymore. Perhaps your mind is just clear or wandering until a plane shows up. That is when you'd be most prone to a capture error. You step out of your reverie a little bit, but perhaps not far. After all, you've landed planes over and over. The habit's in place. You can land planes without even thinking. And of course, that's true. It's true as long as the conditions now match the conditions back when the habit was formed. And they do not. The importance of working memory with respect to the prevention of capture errors has been demonstrated in the lab. Capture errors can take over even when a habit is just our tendency to pay attention to something new that happens. Remember those rapid glances I told you about, saccades? They usually allow us to construct those sensory memories of a visual scene. And in a sense, these saccades can be thought of as a habit we have. When something appears in our environment, we saccade to it. However, in the experiment I'm going to tell you about, we're going to ask people not to do that. It's a so-called anti-saccade task. It works as follows. You are told to look at a small X located at the middle of a computer screen. After some random time passes, a stimulus is flashed either to the right or to the left of where you're looking. You are told to move your eyes in the direction that is opposite to the side where the stimulus appears. So if it appears on your right, you should look left. If it appears on your left, you should look right. Of course, this is a really an unnatural thing to do. 
And that's precisely the point. Our natural habit is to look at things that suddenly appear, not to look away from them. However, as unnatural as it may be, people are able to do this task. They can look to the opposite side. Well, they can look to the opposite side as long as they're able to keep the instructions in their working memory. If instead you ask them to use their working memory for something else while doing this task, then capture errors occur. For example, remember our friend the count backwards by threes task? We used this before to occupy working memory when we were trying to remember a list of words. Well, you can use that in this context as well by giving the participants a number and then insisting that they keep counting backwards when the stimulus is shown. When you do this or something like that, their eyes will go towards the stimulus, not away from it. By the way, this discussion of capturers is also relevant to our previous discussion of the problems that humans encounter when they try to remember to do something in the future, so-called prospective memory. I gave the example of remembering to bring a book for a colleague to work. Well, we all have our morning rituals, and those rituals are actually habits as well. So remembering to find a book and bring it with us as we leave for work, that's not part of our normal ritual. So that will require us to take control of our normal habit at some point. Now the capturers we've been discussing so far are only part of the challenge for perspective memory. Capturers arise even when a current goal has been queued up. But we have even more trouble avoiding capturers when we must both remember to queue the goal at the right time and use that goal to take control of behavior at the same time. So it's small wonder we're so poor when it comes to our prospective memory abilities. Well, capture errors can be as dramatic, embarrassing, or fateful, and the additional challenges of prospective memory can make them even worse. But all that still doesn't really capture why New Year's resolutions are even more challenging to keep. There, we don't just want to take control of a habit, not just some temporary control, but we actually want to eliminate that habit. That is, we want to control that habit on a permanent basis. We really want it completely gone. So maybe we have the habit, for example, of online gambling. Maybe it started out as fun, but now we find we're actually losing a fair amount of money, much more than we're comfortable with. So we make a resolution, New Year's or otherwise. We're going to quit. Well, let's first appreciate the challenge. The computers that we've used for our online gambling are computers that we likely use for all sorts of other purposes as well. We have developed the habit of sitting in front of that computer, opening a web browser, and going to some online gambling site. One important thing to note is that that original habit likely formed because there was something about doing this that we found rewarding. Each time we engaged in that habit in the past, the reward of doing so strengthened the habit. Remember when we discussed neuroplasticity and learning? Well, throughout the development of our habit, our brains are forming connections. Connections among the stimuli related to that habit. And they're relating these stimuli to parts of our brains. Um, those parts of the brains that initiate action, for example. So quite literally then, when we find ourselves sitting at the computer, our brains might be influencing us to complete the habitual behavior. That is, to open the browser, and to go to the gambling site. So now, some more intelligent part of us 
our working memory probably specifically, figures out that this is really a problem. And this revelation probably came when we realized that the habit was no longer under our control. It had become like reading, a behavior that just happens when the right stimulus is there. In the case of a destructive behavior, that can be really quite scary. Perhaps even scary enough to make us want to stop altogether. If we manage to encode that thought into long-term memory at least, that may become literally our resolution. Now, of course, the problem is that the stimuli related to the habits of our life are almost by definition present in our life. For example, it's hard to get through life these days without ever opening a browser on a computer. But if performing those actions, perhaps for some other good reason, they can trigger the habit. And suddenly we find ourselves gambling. Worse yet, at some level, we probably feel rewarded for doing so, just as we originally did. And therefore, the habit will be further strengthened. So let's consider this in light of what I discussed previously in the context of capture errors. In that case, I suggested that in order to avoid making a capture error, one had to have their goal represented within their working memory. If their mind was distracted or occupied by anything other than the goal, then the error would occur. When we extend this to habits that we wish to permanently change, we need this level of focus to be present every time we have the potential of engaging in the unwanted behavior. That's a very tall order. If capture errors reflect problems we have overcoming a habit just once, or during just some small temporal interval, these problems are magnified many times if we wish to control this behavior permanently. We are virtually doomed to fail at some point in time. Now, of course, when we do fail, the rewarding aspect that helped to form the habit originally will still be present, and each failure will strengthen the habit further. And this is working directly against our goal to overcome that habit. This is when the interactions of declarative and non-declarative memory systems are really like that battlefield I described. After a few failures, one might just give up. They may feel that habit has, it's completely beyond our control. And they may be right. Trying to stop a habit that is already well-formed may be extremely difficult. And doing so may require extraordinary measures. So, for example, in the case of online gambling, the only solution might be to find ways to block access to all gambling sites from any computer you use. Besides taking these extraordinary steps to block stimuli for the old habit, another approach that is sometimes available is to use one's working memory to support a new habit, a new habit that competes with the current unwanted habit. So let's return to the online gambling habit and pretend that it's my habit. Here's the process I might go through. First, I might ask myself, when do I tend to engage in this habit? If it happens to be something I do at a consistent time, let's say it's something I do just after supper every day, I might try to pick up a different habit that is inconsistent with the gambling habit. I might try to find something else that I also find rewarding. So let's say I like to swim. And let's say I can find a swim club that meets every evening from 7 to 9 p.m. If I get into the habit, of going to that swim club, I can't be gambling at the same time. Of course, I must be very firm with myself and insist that I stick with the habit every evening for some rather long period of time. 
you may have heard the notion that it takes three weeks of doing something consistently to form a habit. Really, there's no reason why all habits should take the same amount of time to form, and so I'm a little dubious about that three weeks. In fact, a 2009 study from University College London found that people volunteering to change a specific habit in either their eating or their drinking or their activity ranged very widely in terms of how long it took for the new habit to feel like a habit. Their range was anything from uh, as quickly as 18 days to 254 days, you know, two-thirds of a year. That's when the habit started to feel automatic. The average, by the way, was about 66 days. So hoping for a new habit to take root in only three weeks may be a bit optimistic for all but the easiest new habits. And the practical conclusion from this is, if you want a habit to feel like a habit, look ahead to a period of at least two months of literally controlling that habit and insisting with yourself that you engage in it. Okay, so now, let's suppose we go swimming for 66 days. If we're swimming, we can't be gambling, and hopefully by the time we arrive home, we're tired enough to go straight to sleep without touching the computer. At the brain level, we're forming new connections yet again, or really, we're shaping them. We're taking the time-based cues from our environment that used to push us to the computer and are instead associating them with a different activity. The hope is that with enough consistency, we can make these new connections stronger than the ones currently in place. And if we can keep up the consistency, the new connections should eventually become stronger than the old ones. Now, of course, if we fail along the way, we will be re-strengthening the old connections instead. And if this failure consider, uh, convinces us that it's hopeless, well, then it will be hopeless. However, one good 